0: Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankton. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to this week's episode of Jonathan on Money, where we explore various timely topics in personal finance and its intersection with Jewish life. Every week, I cover a range of topics in this area, including investing, behavioral finance, estate planning, financial planning, taxes, insurance, and more. Each show is packed with practical and actionable information. This is episode number 39, and we have a pretty amazing show today. My talking points this week will discuss a topic that comes up often in the Orthodox Jewish community, which is, should I pay for a young couple, Shana Rishona, in Israel? Some newly married couples have the custom of spending their first year of marriage living in Israel and learning Torah together while their parents foot the bill. I'll discuss this idea and and offer some practical thoughts on the subject. We also discuss a very profound thought on about investing in life from musician John Mayer. And as always, I'll spend the last half of the episode answering listener questions. With that, let's jump into this week's talking points. So I received the following question recently, which stated, my son is getting married in a couple of months. He and his fiance would like to spend their Shana Rishona or first year of marriage living in Israel to learn Torah and grow together. He asked me to finance this year abroad. I'm all for learning Torah and growing, but I have other bills and expenses. I was hoping he'd be off my payroll once he got married. I'm reluctant to pay, but if I do, what's the best way to finance it? So the concept of spending a year in Israel to learn Torah and grow spiritually is one with which many readers are familiar. It is typically referred to as Shana Aleph and takes place as a gap year between high school and college. Many universities offer college credit for this year, allowing some parents to consider it worthwhile even if they suspect that their 18-year-old child will be hanging out on Ben Yehuda Street instead of in the base medrash. On the other hand, the minhug or custom of spending Shanari Shona in Israel may be less familiar to some people. It may also be more difficult to convince one's parents to finance this lifestyle choice at a point when children should, in theory, be able to support themselves financially. Unfortunately, unlike saving and paying for college education, there are no tax advantage accounts, government loans, or tuition assistance programs to fund this endeavor. Creative financing options may need to be considered. And here are some ideas to discuss with your son and future daughter-in-law to help with this decision. First, ask the in-laws. While you seem less enthusiastic about your son's plans, your in-laws may be ecstatic about the idea. They may be more willing more than willing to pick up the tab. Before things get complicated, find out if your son asked his in-laws their thoughts and gauge their willingness to pay. Next, maybe split the cost. If the in-laws don't want to foot the full bill, they may be willing to split it with you. Even better would be a three-way split with the newlyweds contributing a share. What started out as a major financial burden can be, some, can be much more manageable when finding another party or two with whom to split the cost. Another option is for the young couple to work while there. If your son feels strongly that this is an important life decision, then splitting his time learning and working can make his dream attainable. Realistic options include teaching at a yeshiva or getting paid to be in Kolel. In the age of Zoom and the heavy reliance on technology by companies all over the world, it's also feasible for your son to earn an income working remotely for a U.S. company in almost any field he chooses. There are plenty of opportunities out there. It's just about going after them. You could suggest that he wait to go until he can afford to pay for it himself. This may sound harsh, but it's one of the cornerstones of personal finance that should be learned sooner rather than later. The concept of delayed gratification is often the difference between folks who are on solid financial footing and those who are not. Spending years working, saving, investing to be able to achieve one's more expensive life goals is traditionally how prudent investors live their life. This is how people afford to travel the world, buy vacation home or take their family to a Pesach program in Arizona. Spending a year in Israel, learning is one of those goals that may take time to, to save towards, and there is nothing wrong with that. Another consideration is, that, is the fact that sometimes it makes sense to splurge. There are some opportunities that have the potential to be life-changing. In those situations, the money is not paramount. Some may argue that going to Harvard is worth the price tag, even if it means taking out a second mortgage or student loans. After all, being a Harvard alumnus puts you in a rarefied company and may be incred- and may be credibly beneficial to one's career. Maybe not so much today, but possibly. The same is true for someone who got an internship to work at a great company, even if it was unpaid. The experience itself may be a game changer, despite not, not receiving an income. If you and your son decide that spending a year learning in Israel can change the trajectory of his life in a positive way, then paying his expenses for another year is a small price to pay in the scheme of things. Perhaps your son is a gifted Talmudic scholar and studying at a particular yeshiva or with a particular rabbi in Israel can help further his ability to excel in his field. Perhaps the lifestyle and family your son and daughter-in-law hope to build will be stronger for having this foundation. Those are decisions that go beyond dollars and cents and is something that you and your family should decide together. And I'd like to end by saying may Hashem guide you in making the right decision. Okay, those are the talking points this week. And as a reminder, you could be notified of all my recent articles, webinars, and all the other work I put out by subscribing to my free monthly newsletter at parkbridgewealth.com forward slash newsletter. We're currently at 7,500 subscribers and growing, so feel free to sign up and invite friends as well. Now for this week's quote, which is from musician John Mayer at a show on a solo tour, Mayer confessed to the audience, I wait for most things to be over. I wait for this to be over to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Because I've realized, he said, everything you love and hate leaves at the same speed. Dun, dun, dun. The thing that you hate and that you have to do tomorrow will be over before you know it and the thing that you're looking forward to tomorrow will be over before you know it. So I have a new rule in life, Mayor said, and the rule is this. Never wish for less time. Waiting for things to be over is just wishing for less time. Waiting for this to be over to get to the next thing, that's just wishing for less time. So wherever you go, just make a home right there and do that thing. Wherever you are, are, go. This is where it's at right now. I've been having the time of my life because I figured that out. Well, this quote is not particularly succinct, I think the message is profound. So much of life is waiting for the next best thing, and in finance it's planning for the future, in particular retirement. Sadly for some of us, retirement may not come due to health or severe illness or death. The key is making the most of the present, whether it's good, bad, or the mundane. Just live in the moment and don't spend so much time looking towards the future. Yes, planning for the future is important and having something to look forward to is essential. However, this should not be the way we spend all our time. If it is how we spend our days, we'll not, we will not be able to appreciate and live in the moment, which is the most important thing. Now let's jump into this week's financial questions. And if you do have a question, feel free to submit it to me at Jonathan at ParkBridgeWealth.com and it may be answered in a future episode. Okay, first question. My portfolio was down in 2023 when it seems like most areas of the art market are up. What did I do wrong? It's impossible for me to know the answer to this question without seeing your portfolio. However, possible reasons include overtrading, taking investment advice from your note all brother in law, taking advice from friends at the Kiddish Club, chasing past performance, listening to charlatans, tinkering with your investments too often, concentrating your investments in areas of the market that plummeted this year. Your financial advisor is really a thief who is stealing your money. These are all missteps that are not, not all that uncommon for folks and may lead to poor performance, even if the market is up. You should have an objective third-party look into this for you. Okay, the next question. I see you writing about 401Ks and 403Bs, but my work said they do 457 plans also. These numbers mean nothing to me, but there are so many options out there. Is this prudent a prudent avenue to assure my financial success? Yes, it's prudent to utilize a 457 plan to save for their financial future. I don't want to get too into the weeds, but the way it works is a 457B is also a tax advantage employer-sponsored retirement plan offered to some government employees as well as employees of certain nonprofit organizations. 457B plans are split into two different categories, which are governmental and non-governmental, depending on where you whether you work for the government or not. Although they're similar to 401Ks and 403Bs, 457Bs have unique features that could offer more flexibility. For example, 457s may have more flexible withdrawal rules and bonus contribution options. When you open a 457B, typically you set aside pre-tax dollars in the account, reducing your income. Money in the account can be invested and potentially grow until you make withdrawals, at which point you'll pay taxes on what you take out. Depending on your employer plan, there there may be a Roth option where you contribute post-tax dollars and then don't have to pay taxes when you take that money out. Like with 401ks, your contributions are held in a trust and can't be claimed by your employer's creditors. Money saved in a, a governmental 457b can be rolled over into other retirement accounts, such as IRAs and 401ks. A non-governmental 457b plan is backed by the offering company like a college or other nonprofit. In a non-governmental 457b, you tell your employer the percentage of your income you like to contribute, but the employer owns the account, not you. If that employer runs into trouble with creditors, your funds could be at risk. Also, because the account is your employer's and not yours, you can't roll over the funds from a non-governmental 457B plan into another retirement account, and you may not have control over how the funds may be invested. And you can't have a loan backed by the funds in your non-governmental 457B like you can with a governmental plan. Another distinction is that you may have lower contribution limits than the general max. And I hope that information dump helps somewhat. Next question, I'm shopping around for a new advisor, and I like references from the advisor's clients. One guy said he doesn't disclose his clients, while the other person gave me his top client to call. I'm inclined to go with the guy with references. Thoughts? I'd be very wary of working with an advisor that gives you the names of his clients to call. One of the top priorities with working with any advisor should be their seriousness on client confidentiality. I'm assuming he, does, he, he asked his clients if they are okay with speaking with someone as a reference, but even asking them to do this seems inappropriate. Managing a family's personal finances closer to a patient-doctor or client-attorney relationship versus other type of service providers. The other obvious issue is that this guy can introduce you to his mother-in-law or college roommate who will say good things about him no matter what which is not particularly helpful. He's obviously not taking a poll of all his client satisfaction level and sending it to you. It's only the ones who he knows will say good things about him. So this exercise of asking for references is actually worthless. There are much better methods of choosing a financial advisor and asking for references is not one of them. Do you think having a diverse board of directors is essential for explosive stock market performance? Maybe yes, maybe yo, oh, but let's take a, a step back. How are we defining diversity? Diversity of appearance or diversity of opinions? I'm not expert on these matters unless it relates to the diversification of one's portfolio. But companies that focus on including directors who look different on the outside are a waste of time. This is what we are seeing with the whole implosion of the DEI movement right now. It was focused on superficial diversity. On the other hand, having a board with highly intelligent, highly successful folks from a range of different backgrounds who can respectfully and intelligently discuss and debate the direction of a company is helpful. They may all look the same, but if their viewpoints are different from their vast experiences, this may be helpful in future company growth. The challenge is how can the common shareholder evaluate the quality of the board without speaking individually to each member and evaluating their qualities they bring to the table. Given that challenge, I would use other strategies to pick winning investments and not rely on board diversity as a criteria. And the question is if I can retire in five years at 73. I have about 100K in investment accounts, 30K in cash, 15K of credit card debt 600k mortgage on a house that's worth around 700k I owe 30k on my two cars and I make 250k a year. So let me rephrase your question. I am a broke and um, I am a broke senior citizen. Can I stop working anytime soon? And the answer is no unless you have someone willing to support you. You have no money. The path to retirement for you is to cut your expenses drastically and save and invest a lot of your income like 50% The good news is that you have a healthy income, so it's possible to one day retire. But drastic decisions need to be made. Remember, you don't get a pass on math. You must build up your assets and get rid of your debts. There is no way around that. What's your biggest financial regret of 2023? So I'm not a big regret guy. I try to make the best decisions I can with the information I have at the time as I go through life. If I mess up a decision, then I clop my chest, yell khatati, and try to do better next time. I try to keep moving forward and not dwell too much on the past. All that being said, the one air, one financial area I think I can do better on is investing more in myself and my business. Right now, I don't spend a lot of money on marketing. It's a tiny percentage of my expenses. Thankfully, it's not necessary. However, the money I could spend on certain strategic marketing endeavors will undoubtedly have the highest return on investment since it may meaningfully increase my revenue. It's super important to invest for the future through one's retirement and taxable accounts. However, it's equally important to invest in yourself and your professional growth and development. I need to do more of the latter. What are your personal finance resolutions for 2024? This is sort of related to the previous questions. However, answer with another financial item (laughs) that I can do better at in the coming year, which is taking bigger advantage of tax benefits of being an independent business owner. This is different from being entrepreneurial within a larger organization. Since I have a home office, I can write off many expenses related to housing, cars, etc. I can pay myself rent and write off meals and other ex- items that are business expenses. I make distributions to myself so my income is not all coming out as salary, which is less favorable from a tax per se- perspective. In fairness, my wife is the one who is more on top of this than me, so I do need to elevate my own game to ensure that I am maximizing the U.S. tax code to best serve my needs. Remember, it's important to pay your taxes, but you don't need to leave the government a tip. Take advantage of every tax benefit available to you and your business. Okay, next question. Has your review of money changed since you started working? Yes, and I'm ashamed to admit this, but as a young yeshiva bachar in YU, I had a strong taiva to earn a tremendous amount of money. I'm not sure why this was, since I don't like many expensive things, don't appreciate fine food, nice clothes, and don't hang out in fancy places. A kiddish with Hamish people, greasy kugel, herring, and a shtickle shivis is more my jam than a country club with stuffy aristocrats. The only thing that costs money that I thoroughly enjoy doing is traveling, and even then— I stay in mediocre hotels unless I use points and don't go. I don't go on organized tours and I enjoy going around for the most part by myself. All that being said, as I started working, I realized that there are many more things in life that I enjoy more than making money, such as flexibility in my schedule, interacting with nice people, avoiding people that annoy me, and not being stressed out. As long as someone has enough money to pay their bills, save for retirement, and a little cash so they have some breathing room then anything more than that may just lead to more hardship. Money is a wonderful tool, but is a huge burden to people who have too much of it. This is a whole discussion unto itself, but trust me on this, I meet a lot of miserable, sad people with tons of money. Not every rich person has this problem, but many do. At this point in my career, while it would be nice to make more money, I turn away more business than I take in. If someone strikes me as being difficult to work with, doesn't like my philosophy or way of doing business, takes issue with my fee structure, or I just don't like them, I won't work with them. It doesn't matter how much they will pay me. I don't need heart palpitations or angina. I'd rather make less money and not have to deal with someone that I don't like who stresses me out. A quick story here, I still wake up from nightmares due to a client I had at a previous firm who'd call and complain constantly. Even when her portfolio was up 20%, then I would wake up In the middle of the night. And now I now I will wake up in the middle of the night. And I'm thankful that I no longer work with her, even though she paid me plenty of money and never complained about my fees. She just complained about everything else. In short, money's a tool to live the life you want having too much of it, it causes stress. With hindsight, I'm comfortable not trying to make as much money as I can and instead focus on living a more relaxed and fulfilled existence. I believe the trade off is worth it. I spend a lot of money around the holiday season. I can afford it, but feel super guilty about spending so much money during this time of year. There just doesn't seem to be any good reason for it. Thoughts? This may seem obvious, but here it is. Stop spending so much money if there's no good reason for it. Don't let marketing get the best of you. There's no reason to buy so much stuff now. Now, if you feel that it is necessary to splurge now for business or personal reasons, that's a whole different ballgame. In such a scenario since you can't afford this splurge this surge in expenses I would recommend matching all your financial outlays during the holiday season with an equal dollar contribution to your investment account this way psychologically you're spending and investing the same amount practically it will allow you to more quickly build your nest egg around the holiday season instead of just draining your funds Okay next question what's the biggest financial risk in 2024 so nobody actually knows the, the answer to this question. The talking heads from major Wall Street banks get paid big money to pretend that they know the future, but I don't like pretending. The answer to your question, which does not attract viewers, clicks, listeners, or new clients is this. The biggest risk is the one that you totally that you totally don't expect. Think about a COVID-19 as an example. The world shut down. No one could have, ex- have predicted this. Due political risks, a major Ponzi scheme, a Fortune 500 company cooking the books, and countless other examples. This happens all the time. Something will happen in 2024 that no one saw coming. The key is not obsessing over what this major risk could be. Rather, it's focusing on properly structuring your portfolio to ensure that this unforeseen risk doesn't devastate you financially. And obviously, if you need help with that, feel free to reach out. Okay, that's it for financial questions this week. Feel free to reach to email me with any questions you have, and I might answer them in a future episode. You can reach me at, Jonathan at Parkbridgewealth.com. With that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's a spend lesson you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Jonathan on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at Jonathan at ParkBridgeWealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all of my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, If you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.